after that wonderful hymn of praise, I would be quite happy to uh, lead us in prayer and us go to the table of the Lord Jesus. It was that awesome and that praiseworthy. And we have a praiseworthy Savior, and we come to remember him in his death on our behalf just a little later in the service. I want to thank you for the privilege that's been mine for these past two Sundays to open God's Word to you. I, I know that uh, guest speakers usually say something like that, but uh, this place is special to me, and uh, I am indeed honored. I'm grateful to God for his touch on Pastor Rick's throat, and as together we prayed, and uh, we're grateful for his testimony that uh, his throat's been touched and a good report from the doctor, and we rejoice with you. I need to tell you, and if you don't already recognize this, I, I really want to underscore what an outstanding pastoral staff that God has gathered together here. They are more than competent, and uh, I trust that uh, you give thanks to God and lift up the staff here every day. And the staff behind the scenes, I mentioned the early service, they are professionally helpful. I have uh, seen office staff that were professional but not particularly helpful, and uh, those that were helpful but not particularly professional. And so I am grateful to God that you've got such an office staff, and that couldn't take place without the leadership of the senior pastor, and it couldn't take place without the support of all of you. So I commend you. Mid-January, you get the notice the invitation. It says that there's going to be a wonderful barbecue, and uh, as a part of that barbecue, you'll watch the Super Bowl. The special thing about the Super Bowl is that we will have Tony Romo leading the resurgent Dallas Cowboys onto the field, and on will come the limping Ben Roethlisberger leading the Pittsburgh Steelers. And you're excited because it's a beef barbecue. And then at the bottom, it says B-Y-O-B. Bring your own beverage. Some would say bring your own beer, and some would say bring your own booze. And at this point, I'm already in trouble because are, are you affirming such a thing? I'm absolutely neutral. All I'm telling you is that in this audience, the BYOB would be the issue that causes the problem. I want to tell you, in the first century, it wasn't the BYOB. The first century for believers in Corinth, the issue was you're coming to a barbecue, and the meat that's going to be served was at one point offered to idols. So should I really go to a barbecue where the meat that's going to be served to me, as delicious as it may be, was offered to idols. There were those of the faith that believed this, that when that meat was sacrificed and offered to an idol, that somehow the power of that idol, the power of the demon, was infused into that meat. 
So without doubt, it was sin to eat such meat. There were others that said, well, I don't believe that there was, there's an infusion into the meat. But frankly, I'm so glad for what God saved me from, from that idol worship. I just don't need to be reminded. So I would rather not have barbecued meat that's been offered to idols because it just reminds me of my sinful past and I'm free in the Lord Jesus. And then there were others that said this, ha, meat is meat. And if you're offering me a T-bone and watch the Super Bowl, I'm in, all in. And if there's another brother that doesn't want to eat his portion, I'll eat his portion too. Because <laughs> we say to ourselves, that seems sort of strange, doesn't it? As the Apostle Paul in his century takes us through what we might refer to as disputable things, we want to see today that it applies to us. It applies to us in our freedom in Christ. It applies to us that we've been made bond slaves of the Lord Jesus. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Last week, we looked together at the first question and answer the Apostle Paul had as he continues with the question that answers the question this week is found in verse 1 of chapter 8. Now concerning food offered to idols. That's the next big question. Paul, we've been struggling with this. We need some insight. We know that all of us possess knowledge. That's what they all said. This knowledge puffs up. But love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. As the apostle begins his discussion, immediately, immediately, he enters the term love. A couple of times, because when we come to disputable things, it is going to be foundational that we deal with these issues in love. He says, if it's just knowledge, knowledge puffs up. This week I had the opportunity to sit in the council that was investigating our second son regarding his doctor of philosophy in biophysics. I have to tell you, the guys that were in the room, the only word that I understood in this whole presentation was water. <laughs> Everything else was And there were five professors in there that they had knowledge. And as far as I could tell, not an ounce of love towards my son. And you could almost see that they wanted to one-up the fellow beside them in the kind of questions that they asked and answered. And, and I'm studying this text and thinking, man, you guys are proven that knowledge puffs up. When it was all done and my son had actually passed, somebody asked me after the early service, do I now have to call him doctor? Not on his life. <laughs> we begin as believers in the Lord Jesus on this issue of disputable things, we need this basic commitment. 
that we will deal with these things loving one another. Because if you don't do it with loving one another, can we get, can we get arrogant about our Bible knowledge? We, we can, can't we? But how much more we know than the brother or sister across the aisle from us? How much better we understand doctrine? How many more verses we've memorized? How much more study we've done? How black and white the world is to us? We begin, as the apostle does, with a deep commitment to love one another. One word on this issue of love and truth, lest you misunderstand. Here we are talking about disputable things. When we deal with one another in love all the time, let me have a word about love and truth. Because there are some people that say, oh no, that love is primary and love should be even above truth. Oh, and no, it can't be. Truth, and particularly the truth of God's Word, always is preeminent and predominant over love. And I submit to you this, if you take love ahead of truth, ultimately you will have neither truth or love. So don't make any mistake, when we're talking about the thus saith the Lord, the thus saith the Lord, we don't get to set that aside out of some indication of love. Be clear. On the issue of disputable things, we begin with love. I want you to notice as well, verse 4, Therefore, as the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Stop there. I believe that not only does the apostle set it within the context of love, he also sets it within the context of the lordship of Jesus Christ, that the statement he makes about the Father and the statement he makes about the Son is not simply creedal, that there comes the reminder that there is one God, and there's the reminder and the underscore of one Lord, and he is Jesus Christ. Do you remember Paul's great statement in Philippians chapter 2 regarding the person of the Lord Jesus? And we are extolled and reminded that let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not think equality with God was something to be grasped. Didn't think that he had to prove that all, but made himself of no reputation. And he took the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of man. That the Lord Jesus in his lordship sacrificed nothing of his Godhead. He has been, is, and forever will be God the Son. As he came and took on humanity and became one of us, he voluntarily limited 
some of his rights that he had as God. Because God certainly had the right never to hang on a cross. God certainly had the right never to die in our place and in our stead. And as we come to this issue of our rights and we look at love and then we look at the lordship of Jesus Christ, I have to, we need to, together to say, okay, as I'm about to claim my rights, I do so within the context that the Lord Jesus gave up his rights. So rather than always claiming mine, I say, in light of the loving of my brother or my sister, in light of what the Lord Jesus has done on my behalf, then I will voluntarily surrender my rights. I'm so glad that we're free in the Lord Jesus, aren't you? That we're not bound in sin? That we don't have to sin? That he's empowered us and he's made us free? But there are some disputable things. And in these disputable things, we have to ask one another, how are we going to love? And how are we going to prove outwardly that Jesus is Lord in our lives? That brings Paul to this. We surrender our rights for the sake of the weak and immature believer. We surrender our rights for the sake of the weak the immature believer. However, verse 7, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. We need to define clearly in this passage who is the weak and immature, who's not, and how that applies to us. Note this, the weak, the immature person is the one who acts against their own conscience and engages in behavior that he or she believes is sinful solely because a mature believer engages in the same conduct. This is not the strong one that has, as they view it themselves, and everything in their world is black and white. This is the weak, immature believer who isn't sure about all kinds of things. And maybe you believe I, I have freedom to, to go to that Super Bowl party, and not only will I have the steak, if somebody's brought it too far along, and I'll, I'll enjoy that as well. And there's somebody else that's there that for them, 
the issue of alcohol is, is a real struggle because they, they know in their background there's a grandfather that struggled with alcohol and there's an uncle that struggled with alcohol. And, and this, this could be a real problem, but, but that's a mature believer. And, and if, if in good conscience he's having that drink, I, I guess... I guess I will too. This text says if you're taking that liberty and causing that weak brother to stumble, to cause them to do what you're doing against their own conscience, this text doesn't say that's just wrong. This text says it's sin. Careful. That's for the weak immature brother. Let's talk about surrendering my rights, what it is and what it's not. It's giving up everything and anything for the sake of an immature believer. What it is not is giving up anything and everything for someone else's preferences. And frankly, when we've come to this passage, this particular passage has been used through the years by many to hit one another over the head about preferences. That there's been a misunderstanding about what it is to be a stumbling block. A stumbling block isn't that somehow your brother in Christ is offended by what you've done. It's if they want to engage in that activity against their own conscience in those kinds of activities to which the Scripture does not specifically speak. But when it comes to preferences, we've got them, don't we? Some of you have preferences when it comes to this place. Some of you have already noted that it's Communion Sunday and I don't have a jacket on. And I just about had a fit when I saw how many guys have jackets on and I don't. Some of you would prefer that. Some of you, I noticed last week, like two sets of drums now. Some of you would prefer that there be no sets of drums. That cage... (laughs) When I was young, the only way that cage would have been used was to put the Powers Boys in it. And you believe that there's something specifically, well, fairly sacred about that instrument and whatever happened to the grand piano, who knows? You may have that preference, and you have every right to have the preference. What you don't have the right to do is to raise it to a standard of righteousness and then apply it to others. That if you don't hold this standard the way I hold this standard, you are not as righteous as I am. Let's turn it around. 
If you're sitting here today saying, I am so glad that I am not bound like those people are bound, that we've got freedom in Christ and we can have PowerPoint and we can have as many instruments as you could possibly put on a platform and the more the merrier and I am more righteous than those people that are bound. You've taken your freedom, raised it to a standard of righteousness and now you're applying it to other people. Got it? A friend of mine was quite upset. He was sure that when his son had gone off to Europe that he had gotten himself a tattoo. He was upset about that, especially since the son had gone to Europe to go to Bible college. And the son wouldn't show him. And the son wouldn't show him. And finally, the dad got him to take his shirt off. And there, blazed across his back, was saved by grace. The fact that it's so quiet in here gives me some indication that uh, you might be struggling a bit with that. You see how, see how easily we come to a point of, well, and the son is looking at his dad saying, I thought you'd be pleased that across my back for as long as I now live will be saved by grace. The uh, young people were in the earlier service. Let me, let me say to any that are younger right now, uh, don't use this illustration as your right to go get a tattoo. Okay? And forget about my phone number or email address. We have preferences in our home. That we'd better be sure that we don't take those preferences and raise them to standards of righteousness and then begin applying them elsewhere. It's easier to always see those, isn't it, in, in a different generation? I grew up in a home where I was in my teens before we had a television. I grew up in a home where there was no sports on Sunday. Sunday was pretty well defined. You went to Sunday school, you went to the morning service, you read your Sunday school paper in the afternoon, and you got uh, ready for the evening service. And uh, after the evening service, when I was young at least, you hoped that you got invited to somebody's house for tea after church and uh, that they had uh, somebody your own age that you could play with. That was Sunday. And then we went to the cottage, and Dad wanted to make Sundays different he didn't know how, so he did. Here's the cottage. At our particular cottage, we're about 30 feet from the water. Thou shalt not swim on Sundays. Thou shalt not fish on Sundays. I can tell you about, as a teenager, standing on the end of the dock with my watch, I kid you not, at 11.55 on a Sunday night, waiting for it to turn to midnight. And as soon as it hit midnight, then in goes the lure. Because prior to that would have been, of course, fishing on Sunday. We laugh about those. Careful. Careful. But what you may take as your own preference and raise it to a standard of righteousness 
and begin applying it elsewhere. By the way, for those of you who now think I have no home to go to, uh, my dad was in the early service and he hugged me after. <laughs> what surrender is not is giving up anything and everything for preferences. God deliver us. But ultimately, the Apostle Paul going beyond anything as trivial in one sense as meat argues in the beginning portions of chapter 9 that we surrender our rights for the sake of the gospel. That we surrender our rights for the sake of the gospel. Paul's an apostle. He had the same rights as the other apostles. Notice in verse 1 of chapter 9, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the real seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Peter? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without giving some of the milk? What's taken place with Paul? Paul, in terms of his ministry in Corinth, had determined this. He would not receive anything from them in terms of making a living, in terms of supporting him. Why? Because of this. There would have been those in Corinth that would have said, ha, we've got this Paul. He's only in it for the money. Then why this defense? When he's asking, I'm an apostle, don't I have a right to this? Because there were those in Corinth that said, he won't take any money. That's the evidence he's not an apostle. So on one hand, if he acts like the other apostles and takes money, there'll be those that'll say, you're only in it for the money. On the other hand, if he doesn't take money, they'll be saying, that's the evidence that he's not an apostle. What's Paul's point? Paul's point will be this. I voluntarily surrender what are absolutely my rights as an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the gospel so nobody will be unclear, nothing will be shaded about what possibly could be my motives, that my only motive is sharing the good news of the gospel, that nothing, nothing shade that. Hear his word. Do I say these things on human authority? No. What's his argument? That the law said, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for an ox that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope, the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we've sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Notice his argument. Nevertheless, 
we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. I ask you, would you today, like the apostle, look and say, I will surrender anything and everything for the sake of the gospel. He had every right. And this is at its most basic, just to make a living. And Paul says, the gospel is so important to me. And the clarity of the gospel is so important to me that lest there be any doubt, I take nothing. I will be a tent maker. I will make my own living. And though I have every right for the sake of the gospel, I will not. Boy, that puts preferences as really weak, doesn't it? Preferences are left way behind. Now we're talking about a basic right. The vast majority of us in this auditorium assume that when we go to work, at some point we're paid. Someone over here just said amen. Yeah. I ask you this morning, because this isn't just a second or a first century story. What kind of surrender are you willing to make for the sake of the gospel? What kind of right do you have that, that no one would dispute the right? That you can prove it biblically. Paul does from the law. Paul shows it from the actions of the Old Testament priests. That when they sacrificed, were involved in the sacrificial system, that some of the meat, the food came home with them to support them. Any right that you would hang on to today and say, I'll give up these things. I won't give up this right. A few years ago, there was a man in our church, a young man. He'd gone off to Bible school in a large city in the United States. And while he was there, became totally convinced and convicted that he was to work among inner city youth. Everything was in place for him to work among those inner city youth. But he came home to southern Ontario to believing parents. And the dad said, oh no. My kids are going to stay close to home. You're not raising my grandchildren, when the time comes, you're not raising them in that kind of danger. And ultimately, the son bowed to his dad's pressure. I think it's a tragic story. 
How about your rights? Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's your grandkids. And you see them in the act of surrender, and and you would like to surrender, but you would like the surrender to look just the way you've got it planned. And he doesn't make any deals with us. It's an unconditional surrender that he looks for today. He unconditionally surrendered himself at the cross and calls us in the midst of rights and privileges to an unconditional surrender today. You ready to come to the table? Ready to come and remember the one who gave his body to be marred more than any man's? One who came to shed his blood? One who suffered the greatest humiliation and pain known to the first century in crucifixion. What couldn't happen to a Roman citizen happened to our Savior. And he calls us to remember him and to surrender. You ready today? Let's pray together. For your word, Father, we give you thanks. We bless you for our Savior. We thank you for the wonderful privilege remembering him and his death on our behalf. I pray you would enable us today to full surrender for the sake of the gospel, for Jesus' sake. We ask it in his magnificent name. Amen.